Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Mike Maddock. He's the author of a book called Plan D, Lessons from the World's Most Successful Disruptors. So I think this is going to be a really interesting call. Mike, thanks for coming. I'll do my best, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background. What led you to where you're at today? Well, I'm, um, I was one of the people that didn't do really well in school. I was a terrible student, but I have been pretty good at business. I um, the thing that interested me most coming up was having a couple bucks in my pocket because money meant freedom. So I started uh, making my own money and working for entrepreneurs in high school and started my first business and my second business in uh, high school and college. And since then, I've established seven, I, I would call real businesses. So I, I tell my friends I'm a pretty good starter, a lousy finisher. I'm an entrepreneur. That's, that's, that's what I do for a living. Yeah. And so what, what led you to writing your book, Plan D, and why is it called that instead of Plan B? And you know, what, what inspired you there? Well, so the, my primary businesses have all been around launching and uh, marketing new products and services. And so about 15 years ago, I took a branding firm in Chicago, and we converted it to an innovation consulting firm. And because of that, we've spent you know, hundreds of hours in rooms with really clever, disruptive individuals, and they have a lot in common. And, I, you know, these are, I define disruptors as people that blow shit up for the good of the whole. They they can walk into any room, any relationship, any industry, and they see things that they don't like, and they just, they, you know, they break them, they break them better. And so I noticed, I started to notice what the disruptors had in common. You know, they were thinking about, well, most people are thinking about plan A and, you know, strategists are thinking about plan B. Disruptors are usually two or three steps ahead, hence the title plan D. And 
Plan D is about the superhero powers that disruptors have in common and how they use their, uh, you know, if you'll excuse the turn of phrase, their powers for good rather than evil. Well, what are, what, you know, what are some of the interesting case studies that you have in mind? Well, since I know that you, you have a lot of uh, interest in disruption of healthcare, I'll, I'll give you an example. Years ago, many years ago, we were working with a company called Procter & Gamble. You've heard of them. And I was really excited because the first book I wrote is called Brand New. And I wrote it based on things that I'd learned from the innovators at companies like Procter & Gamble. So when they called and said, hey, we want to hire you, I was over the moon. They hired us to help them launch new products and services for dentists, doctors. And we did all kinds of research. And I remember we wound up in a my favorite room, the brainstorm session. We rented, a, I think, a room down at the St. Louis Zoo and the first day I'm running all over the place. There's post-it notes, there's beanbag chairs, you know, I'm all excited about these ideas. And I remember going to one of their clients and saying, isn't this great? I mean, it's unbelievable. There's like 300 ideas here. I mean, this is, isn't this awesome? And this guy looks at me and he goes, do you know what I do for a living son? And I said, uh, you're a dentist. And he goes, that's right. And you know what that means? That means I'm a doctor. And you know what that means? That means I don't want to hear another idea about whitening teeth. White teeth is a false proxy. You could have the whitest teeth in the room and you could have gum disease. Your teeth could be falling out of your head. I don't care about white teeth. I care about gingivitis. <laughs> and so the next time you come into a room like this, I, 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 th I suggest you do your homework first, son. And I remember feeling so devastated. I went to our client at the end of the day and He's like, well, that was great. And I said, I don't know, man. That guy yelled at me. And so did his friend. He said, no, 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 no. We did our homework. Um, just because that person doesn't think it's a good idea doesn't mean it's a bad idea. And, you know, you can, you probably have. Maybe you should say to him, uh, listen here, son. Why don't you answer <laughs> what the market wants instead of what you care about? You know? Yeah, well, you, you figured it out. I mean, that, that uh, research, that brainstorm led to all kinds of teeth whitening products like white strips. At the time, it was a $4 billion market opportunity that dentists were ignoring. We've all had the experience. We go into the dentist's office. A dental hygienist tortures us for 45 minutes. We go look in the mirror. Our, our gums hurt and our teeth look exactly the same. And what you probably don't know is that about 10 years after the doctor was uh, telling me, you know, to do my homework, the, the association that protected dentists from the future took a case to the Supreme Court, arguing that only dentists should be able to whiten teeth, and they lost. So what I've noticed is that expertise is a trap. And unwittingly, you know, pick an industry, the smartest, most heartfelt, best meaning experts are the ones that cause disruption to happen that to that industry because their expertise blinds them from the possibility that's right in front of them. Yeah. There's something called the tyranny of experts that yeah. seems to be very prevalent today. You know, someone's pulled in as a, as an expert on X, Y, Z, and then you can't question them and everything's settled and you know, all that stuff. So I, I understand. Was it, was it difficult for you to, I mean, to allow for innovation, even when clients were paying you or were they still blocking you from, from being able to help them, you know, again, innovate and get, get off the dime and move on to new projects or no? Well, I see the, we, we created all kinds of systems and processes to uh, bring people along because, you know, with all due respect to the dentist who was not happy with me, he was trying to do the right thing. His heart was in the right place. So the magic is in trying to figure out how to use data, how to use peers, how to use systems and processes for people to see possibility instead of problems. And one way to do that, for example, is, you know, you've heard of open innovation, I'm sure. We would go look for people that were just as smart, just as tenured, just as credentialed, who were solving a similar challenge in a non-competitive industry. And we would put them in the room with, you know, the really smart dentist. And so they, they would listen to those people. You know, a chemical engineer is going to listen to another chemical engineer. Um, a lawyer will typically listen to another lawyer. And if you can find someone, again, that is solving a similar problem in a non-competitive way, that's how you can shake, shake things loose and make a expertise an asset instead of, a, you know, an anchor.
Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So what's, um, I mean, what are some of the advice you have from your book then? How can, uh, I mean, first of all, who is it for to help have breakthroughs and, you know, innovative type stuff happen and, uh, and what are some of the methods, but who's it for first? So I think it's for, uh, it's, it's for people that primarily write for entrepreneurs, people that are trying to change an industry, someone that's trying to, uh, maybe seize possibility, but can't figure out how to get the, the ball rolling in their company or in their industry. Um, I, I talk about uh, one, I'll give you one of the superhero powers. There's, you know, d- some disruptors rely heavily on frameworks. I, I remember being in a room with a really clever person. And I said, you're the best brainstormer I've ever met. He goes, oh, I'm terrible at ideas. I go, what are you talking about? We just had we were in a meeting and more ideas than anyone else. And he admitted to me that he had used a framework to help his mind come up with new ideas. One of my favorite, fra- one of my favorite frameworks uh, um, is the one, three, one framework. Um, have you heard of that, Richard? One, three, one framework. No, I've heard of different thinking methods like Triz and uh, you know, a bunch of stuff like that, but what is one, three, one. So one, three, one, there are some companies that, that actually it's a strategy framework um, and a, or a management framework uh, so you, Richard, you come into my office and it's uh, Monday morning and you say, uh, we got a problem. And I, and I, and I say, well, what do we one, three, one it? And, um, let's have lunch on Wednesday and one, three, one it for me. So on Wednesday, after thinking about it for a couple of days, you come back and you say, one, this is what I think the issue is. Here's the challenge. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. Three, here are three ways that I think we can solve this problem. And one, Here's my recommendation. Now, the twist I like on 131 is if you can get a bunch of really smart people in a room, and there's ways you can uh, test people for different types of seats. I'll talk about that here in a second. And they 131 an issue. You can present an issue like, here's what I think it is. Now, the beauty is when you have five, six, 10 other experts who say, huh, that's interesting. Here's how I see the issue. Here are three things. Here are three stories about how I've solved that issue. And here's my number one takeaway. So there's a tenant in design thinking that if you keep trying to say, solve the same problem over and over and over, but you can't seem to solve the problem, you're probably working on the wrong issue. You're working on the wrong problem. So the one, three, one, given that you have some very bright, objective, clever people that you trust in a room, they can reframe the issue so that you can say, oh my gosh, you know, I've been, I've been trying to solve the wrong problem. And, and that's how, uh, that's, that's one way, one framework and one way that innovation happens more rapidly. Okay. I mean, do people, are people able to come up with three examples of how, you know, they think their thing would work or, you know, what if they're not able to put any examples? Oh, so for I'll I'll give you an example. Um, So, say you're the COO of a company, and you you are uh, you're pushing on uh, a a prop. You know, we're our our margins are down, our KPIs are wrong. We're looking at these metrics, and I I keep thinking it. You know, I keep squeezing it. I think we're measuring the wrong thing. Okay. So you're, you think the problem is that you're measuring the wrong thing because you're an operator, you're a great operator, and that's how you see issues. It's about systems and, and measurement and accountability, KPIs. As a visionary, if I'm, if I'm a visionary, I might say, wow, our margins are plummeting. Are you aware that there's this new technology out there that is replacing 
the way that we do business, I think the problem is that our, our product or service is no longer relevant. Here are three examples of competitors that have introduced new products or services to solve this problem. And the big takeaway I have is that we have, you know, 75% of what we need to launch one of those products today. So what I've done is I've just shifted your perspective from being about KPIs and, you know, tuning the engine on the machine and saying, it, are, are you sure we're working on the right engine here? That's an example of how uh, 131 would work. Now, imagine if you had a visionary and a, a tech futurist and another operator and a strategist and a, and a head of sales and a, an orchestrator all in the same room. Now you have the benefit of having at least five different peers reframe your issue and you can have a debate about whether you're solving the right problem. Mark Twain said, it's, it's not what you know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for certain that just ain't so. And oftentimes as experts, we're actually working on the wrong problems. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, have you had people have problems with coming up with three solutions? I mean, what if you have to say, just give me a one, one, one. <laughs> one one possible solution, you know, for people that, I don't know, maybe they're on the spot and they're they like, I, I just can't think, or they're in a position of lower stature than someone in the meeting and they're afraid to say anything, or, you know, I don't know, it seems like there's a lot of uh, circumstances in which this could be difficult for people. Yeah, so I started a company about a year and a half ago called Flourish Forums, and Flourish, it's, uh, Flourish Forums, plural, and it's an engineered peer group. It's a virtual peer group, and I go out and recruit and find people with C in front of their names, CEO, COO, chief technology officer, and put them in this group. I test them to make sure they're in the right seat. There's an operator seat, a strategist seat, a rainmaker seat, a visionary seat, a, an orchestrator seat, and a tech futurist seat. And when you have people in those different seats, when you one three one something, it's here's how I see the problem. Here are three stories or three ex experiences I have that that inform how I see the challenge. And here's my number one takeaway. This is the big lesson. You have the makings of a, a board of advisors that is because God made them differently, because they see things differently. They're automatically going to have a different perspective on the problem, how to solve it. Now, if you're the one presenting the challenge, it's up to you to decide whether you, you've learned something new, you have an aha moment, they're right or wrong. But it's much more likely if you have an engineered group of different types of thinker thinking that you're going to, that you're going to, you know, auto magically get four or five different looks at the same issue. So how do you, uh, these engineered groups, where do you pull the people from and how do you know you know, are they volunteering their time on a project basis or how does it work? No. So in Flourish forums, the, the, the CEOs in those forums or the CTOs or chief strategy officers, they're paying to be in the group. And so the only way they can get in the group is if they're recommended by another member and there's a chair for them. So there's only one or two strategists. There's only one or two visionaries. There's only one or two operators. And there's a moderator that gets them together virtually, which means that we have members from Vancouver all the way down to Florida to, you know, Dominican Republic that are all in the same group. And they meet once a month and the moderator helps them, uh, you know, present different challenges that they have in a confidential environment. When I do, yeah, it is, it's been really neat. Um, it's a, it's a really fun way to spend time because I get to be in the middle of lots of very clever people trying to solve challenges in with Maddox Douglas, another one of my companies where we get hired to come up with, to do research and come up with uh, new product services and business models. I will go recruit or one of my associates will go looking for um, someone that is say, uh, solved a, a problem in a parallel way. And here's a hack. Here's a disruptor hack. So, you know, everybody believes in their company or in their industry that their their challenges are unique. And so what I like to do is I like to sit with an executive team and say, okay, what are the things that we do that are that are that are unique to us, that are, you know, that 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 position us as a company of value? And it might be things like, well, we 
orchestrate information. We prioritize answers. No, no um, industry speak. And just make a list of all the different things that you're, you think you deliver to your customers that are of value. And then take that list to the closest computer and type those words into Google. And what will happen is you'll get two or three pages of companies that you don't compete with that say they're doing exactly the same things for their customers. And at every one of those companies, there's someone who has the title chief strategy officer, chief innovation officer, and those people like beer and wine and pizza and coffee and being complimented. If you call them and say, hey, we don't compete. Um, you're doing some really interesting things there. Can I buy you beer, wine, pizza, or coffee and talk about what you're doing? That's another way of getting new perspective on how you can serve your clients with new services, products, technology, et cetera. Um, and it's a really simple hack. So we'll look for those people and actually put them in the process, in the innovation process along the way. Are these from competitors or where do these people come from? They're typically not from competitors. I, when I speak on stage, I'll show an example of a bunch of phrases, and then I'll show the logos, the companies that came up. And one of one of the logos that came up, thank God, it was our client, and it was a healthcare insurance client. But but there were uh, you know a, a, about a dozen and a half other really famous companies that came up. And none of them competed with healthcare insurance. So we went and found people in those organizations to be part of this project because they could see the challenges differently and they could reframe the possibility in terms of how to deliver um, what that customer really wanted in a new way. Well, I, I don't know. Tell me if you can an example of a, a really cool innovation or a, a brainstorm that really, I don't know was amazing and, and led to the creation of a really cool product and what happened in it. Maybe it's well, so, so I'll go back to, since I already told the P&G story, the, the problem that we were trying to solve, we use uh, what we call an insight statement. I statement of fact, because reason to believe, but tension. Um, and we, we come up with using these outside experts and consumers, we come up with dozens of these insight statements and then we force rank them based on the value of uh, solving that problem to a customer. So in the case of P&G, it was, I want my teeth to look whiter because it makes me look healthier, but brushing doesn't do it. That was a $4 billion problem that nobody wanted to solve. So we were literally looking, we came up with that insight statement by talking to a bunch of outside experts. And then when we, when we said, okay, uh, teeth whitening is an issue, we want to look for experts that were, um, that, that created, uh, you know, that, that were in the youth business, were in the smile business, were in the cosmetic business, the brightening business, and we put them in the process. I'll give you another example. Uh, years ago for McDonald's, you know, I want to, I want to be able to eat food in the car because I'm always driving my kids from one soccer game to another. Um, but fast food's really messy. Um, that was the problem we were trying to solve, which led, which led to all kinds of handheld foods. It was, how do we make things like snack wraps? How do we put the egg, the uh, hash browns in a sleeve so I can eat it with mm. one hand? And so once you know the problem you're trying to solve, you can go find experts who have solved handheld experts, like easy, you know, ergonomic, ergonomic <laughs> experts, you're, because you're, you, you, and those people aren't competing with McDonald's. They're just expert in a certain type of thing. It makes it easier to figure out who should be in the room with you. Do you, how would you evaluate? Like, I guess, I guess, yeah, you could seek out the people that are experts in those particular, yeah, those features. I see what you mean. So it's the, it's the initial ideation or figuring out again, what the real problem is. And then you can say, all right, who are the experts I need to find that would specifically address this, maybe this strange thing that I need, you know, handheld experts, like you said. Um, and then I guess the innovation goes from there. Yeah. And like, so I, I mentioned earlier that before we get on the podcast that I'm swimming in healthcare, you know, right now, unfortunately, my, my wife is very, very ill. And so you can imagine being, oh yeah, thank you. You can imagine being an, uh, a disruptor innovation guy and then having to get, I know you got dragged through the, um, the cancer, uh, journey and it is fraught just filled with um 
ridiculous customer experience issues that are begging to be fixed, you know? But I would argue that oftentimes the system is set up to solve the wrong problem. And since the, since the system is set up to solve the wrong problem and the way decisions are made in healthcare is laddered up to, you know, the most powerful, smartest doctor, typically they're caught in the expertise trap. You know, Mm -hmm. my favorite saying in the world is you can't read the label when you're sitting inside the jar. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so, so that means the longer you've been working on a problem, the more successful you've been at solving that problem, the more you know, uh, you know what works, you know why someone got fired, you know what you can afford, you know the right way to do things, you know uh, you know what's legal, what's illegal, and, and you know, you know, you know, you know, and the more you know, the harder it is for you to see possibility when it's right in front of you. So just by way of example, for years, uh, the medicine psychology is like, why am I so sad? And a whole industry is built around making people who are sad, less sad. And, and instead of saying, why don't we start an industry about making people happy, like just flipping the model, but doctors were trained to deal with sad people rather than the psychology of happiness, which all of a sudden is a thing. And it's creating a whole new industry just by flipping it upside down. Um, yeah, but also like, um, I don't know, I've, I've interviewed well over 3000 people and I can tell you, I hear all the time, oh, that, that's not my field. I'm not an expert in that. So oh I can't comment or, you know, I ask people to speculate. They won't speculate. They're afraid to, you know, they talk about uh, risk them scientifically, how they be perceived, you know, on and on and on. So it just, it just seems like also the underlying systems that govern a lot of the, the things we have to deal with don't allow people to innovate or make it very difficult or scary to innovate. They can lose their jobs and their careers. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a, it's a wicked, wicked problem, but I will tell you like the, the, I just wrote an article for Inc. Magazine. It isn't even out yet, but the, the, when you think about startups, one of the reasons startups fail and the, the low hanging fruit for innovation is Bill Gates said, I've lost a lot of money trying to change behavior. And, you know, Bill Gates, who I think is the fourth richest person in the world right now, if he cares about losing money, I'm going to listen because that's a lot of money. What what you want to do, innovation that actually takes hold is just taking current behavior and making it cheaper, more delightful, more effective. It's when you try to come in and change behavior completely that it fails because it, it costs so much money to educate and get people to act differently. So, what's maddening for me and you kind of mentioned it Richard is that there's already there there are already literally thousands of of touch points in the healthcare system where the behavior is in place but no one is fixing it no one is doing so you mentioned staying in your own swim lane you know if if you spend any time helping someone through the cancer journey which is what i've been doing now for 16 months and it's like you ask about nutrition and it's the first time the doctor's ever heard it. Like, and everybody asks the same questions. So why isn't there a, a, why isn't there a system or process to make that really easy? It, every time you stand in front of a, a monitor, they ask you the same questions and then they transfer you to another monitor upstairs, down the hall, on the phone. And they ask you those questions again in the same hospital, in the same system. The and- excuse is that, oh, then they'll, something else will come out. But you have people that don't give a shit about the answers that just, oh, they're just typing it in. So it yeah. doesn't work. And it just makes you repeat yourself. And it's ridiculous. My, my, uh, uh, the, and, and I don't want to kill the messenger, but the only way, only way you can get through is to say, listen, I know this isn't you, but you have to pass this on to your manager or your boss. My, you know, when I'm in a hospital and they ask me if my wife has ever had surgery and she's had three surgeries in that hospital, that does not uh, instill a lot of confidence in the system. So, you know, there, there, the, the, every industry has its issues, but I would propose to you that the more regulated an industry is and the more dependent it is on a really smart person with a lot of power 
like a lawyer, like a doctor, like a like a, a, a nuclear scientist, the more likely it is that that industry is going to be dramatically disrupted. Because all those things that are excuses about, no, you can't because, no, you can't because, no, you can't because, the disruptor could give a shit. And, and those are all things that keep, that keep disruption from happening, but they're the very same things that allow, that give, that give disruptors such a runway to change the system because they're so far out ahead of the naysayers by the time anybody notices. So is your goal to enable disruptors? or to provide tools and a framework for them to do their job better or to do it yourself or all three? My goal is, my, my purpose, I tell people, is to inspire and empower curiosity, which is to say, I like to be in rooms with people that have the leverage to change the world. I want to make them believe that they can, and I want to give them the tools, the connections, the frameworks, and make it happen. So anytime I can do that, whether it be in a flourish forum, on a stage, um, in a boardroom, the answer is going to be yes. I don't know. Do you, is, is there anything missing to uh, the way you help people brainstorm and come up with ideas? Do you still see any pockets of resistance or, you know, could it be improved, your systems? The systems are being improved all the time. I mean, I, the paradox is, uh, this is, this is a strange paradox. The harder we try to innovate, the worse we get at it. Because the ecosystem of a, nobody likes to be afraid. And when people are under pressure, when the CEO or some leader says, Hey, think we got to change everything. People can't let go for a better grip. So we did a bunch of research about 12 years ago and measured uh, things like, is there fear of innovation? Are you getting better or worse at taking chances? Do you have more ideas or less ideas? And, um, we interviewed thousands of executives. And then about two years ago, Accenture did exactly the same research and found that corporate America has gotten 20% worse at innovation over the decade when innovation became a buzzword. So the innovation paradox is the harder we try, the, the, the worse we get at it. So, so there's always resistance. Another paradox is the companies with the most money to throw against innovation, highly regulated, highly profitable companies oftentimes are the worst at it because the experts in the room have the most power and they've always, you know, they make the most money. They have the most expensive cars, the most expensive homes, and they, their go-to punch is no longer working because a new generation is coming uh, along that wants things served up differently with different technologies but they've always been right in the past and now they're running the company. They're the, you know, so, and, and, oh, by the way, they're three years away from retirement. So they're not going to take any chances. So there's a lot of, a lot of uh, moving parts that, um, that get in the way from innovation. And that's why it's typically, you know, a Napster moment. We coined this term is when someone with no business being in your business comes along and puts you out of business just like a 16-year-old kid did to the record industry. He wasn't trying to disrupt the record industry. He just wanted a solution that record executives said was impossible, so he invented it himself. I guess to joke, the industry was sounding like a broken record. It needed innovation, right? Excellent, excellent. You know, the, the, the CEO of Sony, on Howard Stern, he said, I thought Napster was a mosquito unworthy of swatting. I should have just bought those guys. And that's always the story afterwards, you know? Yeah, same thing with like Barnes & Noble and Jeff Bezos. And, you know, yeah. yeah, all those. If you look at a company that is that one of the, um, one of the best, best questions that I think disruptors are, are great at asking, and, and I think visionary CEOs need to be better at asking, is what business are we really in? What, what business do we have the right to be in? Because what happens is you, you have a whole workforce, you know, that is sourcing steel and um, patenting, uh, you know, the tips on drill bits and, you know, competing with China and dealing with Home Depot and Menards. 
And when you ask them what business they're in, they say, well, we're in the drill bit business. We, we, we are the leading drill bit manufacturer and have been for 100 years. The challenge is that the first company that comes along and realizes that they're in the hole making business will put that drill making company out of business. It's called marketing myopia. And we get really myopic about the business we're in. But if you can ladder up and, you know, there are all kinds of research methodologies to figure out what business you have the right to be in, it allows you to move parallel and pivot and be more expansive in your thinking when the business you're in is no longer that relevant. What does that mean, the business you have the right to be in? People buy from people they trust. People buy from companies they trust. So brands have the right to offer new products and services. Um, but oftentimes they, they don't realize it. They don't understand the business they have the right to be in. So I'll, I'll flip it on you real quick. What what business is Apple in? Um, I guess, you know, multiple, the entertainment business, the connectivity business. Uh, yeah, I mean, the people connecting business, supposedly. I mean, right. So what? So the reason the reason that's a tough question to answer is because because they have done a really good job at understanding different businesses they have the right to be in. You know, they're not a computer hardware company. They're not a phone company. They're not a music company. They're all that. But, you know, I, I I imagine if if I you know ask the executive at Apple, they they would say something about being in the uh, the experience business, the technology experience business or something like that, where Blockbuster was pretty sure they were in the videotape business instead of being in the entertainment business. Uh, that mm-hmm. dentist that we talked about earlier was in the oral healthcare business instead of being in the smile business. Kodak thought it was in the film and chemical business, but they were in the memory business. So there, there's all kinds of mm-hmm. opportunity if you understand the business you're, you have the right to be in. But it, when you're working day to day on, again, you know, sourcing steel and protecting patents and dealing with customer relationships at big box retailers, it's real easy to forget the business that you're actually in. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there a simple exercise for listeners that or in a business and want to be in a business or work in a business to help them identify what business they're really in or businesses. So if I was going to be, if I was up in front of uh, a board, I would, uh, I would create a Venn diagram that had things like your unique skills and reputation, uh, what markets are growing and not your network, your passion and values, key talent and staff, your assets and systems and, you know, if you made a list of all of those right in the middle of that Venn diagram are businesses you have the right to be in. There's also things like what are your customers asking you for that you're not that you're that you're not giving to them? I, I have this friend, his name is Rick Jameson, and he is the brake pad king of Ontario. And right after COVID started, I which is to say that he he his family business has engineered and produced brake pads for every major automotive company for, you know, many decades. And I called him and said, Hey, Rick, how's it going up there in Ontario? He's like, Oh, it's going okay. Yeah. This, uh, this COVID thing, that's for real, huh? You know, it just started. And I said, yeah. It's, so what are you going to do? And he goes, yeah, I think I'm going to make ventilators. And I said, ventilators, but you're the brake pad king of Ontario. He goes, no, 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 Mike, you don't understand. Do you know that uh, brake pads have asbestos in them? I go, yeah. And he goes, that means they're highly regulated. You know what I, business I'm in? I know how to, I, I know how to negotiate really complex contracts with governments that are highly regulated. And guess what? Ventilators are highly regulated. I just happen to manufacture brake pads. How hard could it be? I'm going to, and you know, within a few months, Rick, the brake pad king of Ontario had secured a half a billion dollars in POs to make ventilators because he understood the business he was really in. So if there was one question I would have boards ask themselves is it would be what business are you really in and what business do you have the right to be in? Well, instead of have the right to be in, how about uh, what business are you uniquely suited based on your current, you know, personnel and abilities and insights and blah, 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 to, to take advantage of or to innovate in. Exactly. I mean, the, the, that might be a, a clearer way for people to think about this. By the way, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. 
This is not a new concept. Uh, a Harvard professor named Theodore Levitt came up with this in late in the late sixties marketing myopia. So, um, and then uh, Clayton Christensen, who I had, God rest his soul, who I had the honor of uh, interviewing and uh, introducing um, at uh, an innovation conference, front end of innovation. He called this the jobs to be done framework. That was his spin on it. You know, what job do we, what job needs to be done? Whitening teeth, you know, who, who, who and who has the right to do that job? So there, there's, there's a lot of language around this. But the point is that disruptors don't care whether you know what business you're in or what the business you have the right to be in. They just know that there's something that there's an itch that they want to scratch and they're going to scratch it, whether you, whether you help them scratch it or not. Um, And it's getting easier and easier because of technology and connectivity and everything else for uh, disruptors to, you know, take, take down Goliath. Yeah, I just, I guess I, I don't know, I just personally bristle at the, you know, what business do you have the right to be in? It's like, how dare you? Tell me more about that. What is it that bothers you about that? It just seems like it's along the exact same lines of thinking as, oh, you're not an expert in X, so therefore shut up and don't say anything. You have no right to say anything. Oh, I see. Like yeah, no, I, flip it around. This is the CEO talking to himself, not talking to someone else. This is someone that's running a company or a board saying, what business do we have the right to be in? What are we missing here? They're not asking someone else. They're asking themselves what business they, they really have the right to be in. We did a, a prediction market study about a year ago, and we made, are you familiar with prediction markets? Yeah, I remember I spoke to a few crypto companies for the, I even forget their names now, but yeah, they had all these, they wanted to spin up all these markets where people could you know, say who's going to win this election or who's going to, you know, what's the weather going to be like or what are the prices of wheat going to be a year from now, that kind of stuff. I don't know if that's what you yes, mean. That's great. So uh, uh, the wisdom of the crowd, all of us are smarter than any of us. Uh, prediction, uh, Wall Street is a prediction market. A gambling book is a prediction market. It's where people are, information is available to everyone. People are placing bets and being compensated based on, algorithms, like how quickly they place the bet, how many people follow them and place bets behind them, and what kind of qualitative information they use to to place their bets. They're really useful, and they're quite accurate at predicting the future. Um, What's cool about them is they not only give you a likelihood of... um, Here's a a way to think about it. If if we went to a a carnival and there was a, a jar full... Of a, of a bunch of jelly beans. If you were the first one to guess how many jelly beans there were in the jar, you probably wouldn't be right. But if you were the thousandth person to guess how many jelly beans there were in the jar, and you could look at the math and the, and the formulas and how everyone in front of you had placed their bet, you're much more likely to be right. And that's how a prediction market works. So we, we, we had this thought that after the pandemic was over, and please God, let it be over someday soon, that the, that the future of advice, professional advice, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a, sale, a realtor, whoever gives, gets paid to give professional advice would change forever. So we did, all, we did two prediction markets, one with professional advisors and one with people that bought professional advice. And we, made, we wound up coming up with nine bold predictions. I'm actually doing a number of speeches about this right now. And we one prediction market with the advisors and one prediction market with the consumers. And one of the predictions was that in the future, and I don't have it in front of me, so it's something like this. Um, in the future, experts will, will grow by selling products not usually associated with their service. We called it a horizontal land grab. And that was one of the lead predictions, like 80% of uh, uh, millennials said that was going to happen. 90% or something like that of advisors said it was going to happen. The reason was they were already doing it. And the number one area that they thought it would happen was in real estate. So if you think about human behavior, back to the Bill Gates quote, I've lost a lot of money trying to change human behavior. Realtors are now um, helping their customers with landscapers, with painters, with mortgage brokers, et cetera. Those are parallel industries that they have the right to be recommending because they are a trusted source. 
So when we put our house on the market, I called my realtor and said, do you know a good painter? Do you know a good landscaper? Do you know a good, and guess what? It, the next day I had the best one in this. And I don't, she may have been making money, but through that recommendation, I did not care. I, I trusted her to give me that great recommendation. That's how, so, so what business is my realtor in? Is she in the landscaping business? Is she in the real estate business? I mean, it, that's a good way to think about reframing the business that she has the right to be in. I don't know. Again, I, I, w- I would think you would encounter a lot of resistance or maybe your stature is high enough that you come in there on a project and you know people don't resist you. But what do people do that want to innovate? And they have people that they work with above them, below them, next to them, you know, and uh, they're getting pushback from the people in their organization when they want to come in and do consulting or whatever it may be. And then people are just like, that's not the business we're in, or we've tried that before. It didn't work or, rah, 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 you know, any other excuses that they bark at you. So the, the, one of my companies is named Maddock Douglas, and we have worked with 25% of the top 100 companies in the world. And typically we are hired at the board level at the C-suite level. And so uh, it's much easier to get people's attention when the CEO is the one saying, look, we need to change. And the, the, the reality is that typically when someone calls an innovation consulting firm and says, hey, I think we need to look at changing, there is a market force or forces that are causing that meeting to happen. So the dance, and it's a good question, Richard, the dance is somewhere between fear and inspiration. You have to be able to use the data and customer and the voice of the customer to both inspire and scare people at the right time to understand that there's great possibility if things are go well. And if they don't, things could get really, really ugly very quickly. Um, and most companies are, you know, they're, they're out of balance. They're, they're really good at doing certain things. They built a, a company and culture around it. Um, and change isn't one of them because the, you know, the, the very ecosystem that makes you do what you did yesterday better today and better tomorrow and better, um, doesn't like change. It likes perfection. It likes, um, it likes doing the same thing the same way a little bit better. Um, yeah, I guess it wants to perpetuate itself. Yeah. That's right. And so when you say, hey, we got to change things, immediately people go, well, what, what am I going to do? I don't know how to do that. Do I have to fire my friend? And the company can seize up. And that's where the pushback comes from. So people support what they create. Innovation is a, uh, a team event. You, you have to bring, you can't go back into a, a you know, behind the curtain and come back and say, this is what we're going to do. You have to get teams involved with the research, with the brainstorms. It has to be their idea. They have to understand how this thing is meaningful for their customers and them going forward for it actually to work. Yeah. I mean, it seems like an existential crisis is a, is a great motivator. I've had that before, you know, and it, uh, <laughs> it really yeah. clear, clears the way for innovation. So I yeah. guess what you're trying to do is you're not trying to artificially scare, but you need to show like the promise, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But, you know, if you don't move now, then the, I don't know, the alligator is going to bite you in the ass and you'll never even get to that pot of gold. So get moving. So I guess it's yeah. like a push pull is, is what works. Yeah. I was, um, you're making me laugh because I was complaining once to one of my uh, business mentors, Rick Voren, who's the, uh, uh, the chair of, a of Rand Stegan's company. Rand is another good friend. It's an integral leadership company. If any of you leaders out there are interested in uh, a journey of education to become a better leader, I highly recommend Stegan. Anyway, I was complaining about something with Rick, who was on my board at the time. And he said, Mike, are you open to some feedback? And you know, this is like Yoda asking you if you're open to some feedback. You should I be said, like, I'm the innovator, not you. <laughs> I, said, I said, sure, Rick. And I, I knew when I said sure, it was like he was going to open up the hood of the car and work on the engine. He goes, well, Mike, I hear you complaining. And in my experience, uh, leaders like you only change for one of two reasons. Either you have a vision of the future that is so compelling. I mean, so compelling that there's nothing, nothing 
that's going to keep you from getting to that vision. Or you're so tired of suffering that you can't take it anymore. So unless you can say that you've got a great vision or you're done suffering, ain't nothing going to change. And I think that is the that characterizes where most companies are. They either um, are going to be compelled by a great vision, which is a lot more fun because it pulls you forward, or they're trying to end pain, which is like the problem with ending pain is it's it's episodic. You you make the pain go away for a quarter, and then another quarter. You make one more quarter's earnings, but the pain's still there. So you're beating back the pain, but it never really goes away. So if I'm talking to leaders, I'd much rather go with, let's come up with something the market really needs. They're desperately wanting it from you, something that you guys can deliver. And let's spend our time together as a team generating ways to deliver that. That means we can do it ourselves. We can acquire a company. We can partner with a company. We might already have the idea, but let's start there so that we have this North Star that's pulling us forward because it's way more fun. Okay. So um, in terms of audience listening to this, uh, if someone owns a company, is there a size of the company that you know they could use your tools or they might not use your tools? Or this is really for anyone that wants to make positive change in an industry or, and innovate. Well, so if there's two companies I've talked about today, Flourish Forums is the virtual advisory board. If you'd like to know more about getting a seat on a Flourish Forum, just send me a note at Mike at flourishforums.com and I'll tell you more about it. Um, the, you, you need to be a P&L owner. In other words, you have to be able to write a check, make things happen, and there has to be a seat in a forum available for your type of archetype. That's a longer story. I'm happy to talk to anyone about that. For Maddock Douglas, uh, you know, we, our typical clients call it 300 million in revenue and above. Um, again, you have to be a P&L person. You have to be in charge of the future for your company. And you don't need to hire us. You can send me a note and I'm happy to talk to you about what I know about what I know and who I know and connect you with some possibility. So the, the, I guess that's, and that's Mike at MaddockDouglas.com. Okay. Well, very good. Mike, it's been really good talking to you. Those are some good resources for people. And uh, I guess the best way for anyone to dip their toe in is, is what? Is to get your book or, again, yeah. just jump right in depending on who they are and engage. Yeah, I think the book is, I think Plan D is a fun book. Every chapter is written to stand alone. It's an easy read. I would recommend that. Um, I'm proud of that book. I'm writing a couple more right now, but that that book I think is worth reading. Yeah, and, he, and I'm easy to find. Mike Maddock, if you Google me, I'm happy to help anybody out there that wants to put a bigger debt in the universe. Excellent. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you, Richard. Honor and a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. 